Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Well, folks, Mueller has come and gone. Mueller, Bob Mueller, testified last week. We all waited for two plus years and it was underwhelming, needless to say. And I'm going to give my thoughts about Mueller. If you followed me on Twitter, you saw that I I talked about it. I'm well, I tweeted about it in real time as as the hearing was happening. And, uh, you know, there were some ups, there were some downs, but it was not. um, Well, I'll just say it was worse than I thought it could possibly have been. But. I'm going to talk about that in a a few minutes to preview this week's episode. I'm actually going to try to keep my comments a little brief because the interview is a really robust one with journalist Michael Weiss. And I really felt it was important to bring someone on this week who could speak with authority and expertise on what exactly Russia has been doing, attacking our elections and how deeply this really goes. Uh, two reports came out, one in the Washington, uh, I'm sorry, one of the New York Times and the other, a Senate Intelligence Committee report, really outlining the extent of the Russian interference in our elections and what they're still doing. And that's uh, coupled with Mueller's testimony and Mueller's uh, report, volume one. You've heard me, if you listen to this podcast on a regular basis, you've heard me emphasize that volume one should scare the shit out of everyone. Because that's the whole Russian collusion and what Russia did during the election. And it's alarming as hell. And it kind of got swept under the rug because the more salacious details and characters that we know and see every day were in volume two. That was the obstruction of justice stuff. I mean, both are alarming. Both are, in my opinion, impeachable offenses that have taken place uh, with Trump and his campaign and all that. But... I just want, I thought it would be useful for people to really understand um, what's what Russia's doing and their their bigger ambitions. And so, Michael Weiss, he is a journalist. He's written New York Times bestselling books about ISIS. He's also co-authored reports on Russia and what they're doing. And he writes a regular column for the Daily Beast. So, stay tuned for the conversation with Michael Weiss. It's it's really illuminating. You're, you're going to be a lot smarter afterward. So it'll make a little more sense about what's a little more sense concerning what's happening with Russia, what they're doing, why, and the global impact of it all. It's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot, but I think the American people need to know. They need to know because you're sure as hell not going to hear it from Donald Trump or his minions or anybody on Fox News. That's for damn sure. Um, over the weekend, I um If you are a regular listener of this podcast, you know, I always talk about kind of things that I did over the weekend to keep myself sane because I I have to have balance. I have to have balance in life. Everybody, you got to have balance in life, especially when you do what I do and what I deal with on a regular basis. If I don't have some levity, some, um, you know, joy, <laughs> fun. You gotta, you gotta let off some steam because you, or else you just, you can't handle it all is it's exhausting. This presidency is freaking exhausting, but we cannot give up. We have to have warrior spirits and keep going. And so some of the things that I do to replenish my, my soul is, uh, I go to a lot of live music shows 
and I often go to Wolf Trap, which is an outdoor venue here in the Northern Virginia area outside D.C., and they always have really cool acts all summer. And my husband and I go because you can picnic and you can bring alcohol with you. You can sit on the lawn and picnic and drink and watch live music shows. It's awesome. We look forward to it every year. And it's one of my happy places here. So but this week we didn't go to Wolf Trap. We went to the Kennedy Center, which is one of my other happy places because we went to go see Titus Burgess. Now, I didn't really know who he was outside of some of his more comedic roles. He was in um, The Amazing Kimmy Schmidt and um, 30 Rock. He's been in commercials. Uh, But I had no idea that this guy was out of this worldly entertaining, talented, amazing vocally. Uh, an advertisement popped up on Facebook for the Kennedy Center promoting his upcoming show. And I was like, oh, let me listen. I was blown away. I said, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to have to go see this guy live. And what a treat. What a treat. Titus Burgess, you are a talent. I mean, so he... um he, he did a whole show and he had, he brought out Jane Krakowski, if you know her from 30 Rock. She came and did a couple numbers with him as a, as a special guest. And um, he just put on a great show. And he did a, a rendition of Wind Beneath My Wings, made famous by Bette Midler. And it there wasn't a dry eye in the house by the time he was done. I posted it on my Instagram. I also posted it on because he allowed us to videotape it, which sometimes they don't let you do. Boy, am I glad they did because I needed to codify this in history. This was one of the most spectacular renditions I've ever heard of Wind Beneath My Wings sung by a man. Uh, There wasn't a dry eye in the house by the time it was done. That's an emotionally intense song anyway, but his mom was in the audience because it was her birthday. And so he dedicated the song to her and just blew the roof off. And you know, it was... um, in the midst of all of the negativity and division and racial hatred that's going on, stoked by this freaking president, it brought tears to my eyes because I looked around and I just saw how diverse the crowd was at the Kennedy Center, enjoying this God-given talent in front of us. And everyone was unified and over this the, the music and, and the talent. I just thought, like, this is the best of America. You know, how many people in this room, in this in this concert hall, came from these areas that the president's been attacking as crime infested. And uh, I'm sure you all have heard by now that Trump has been on a Twitter tear for several days going after Representative Elijah Cummings, who represents West Baltimore, not a great area. But he went on and on um, attacking Elijah Cummings district because Elijah Cummings is the chairman of the Oversight Committee. And they have a lot of power to do investigations and they can subpoena and do all kinds of stuff and, and annoy Trump with things that he doesn't want, even though it's their job is to look into government oversight. And Elijah Cummings is black. And so, you know, Trump tweeted out these horrible things about what how, how, how rat infested his district is and how he needs to go fix his district before telling Trump what to do about anything and that no human would want to live in these trash crime uh, rat infested districts and 
let me tell you, that was just, you know, there. if you want to argue about policies in Baltimore and why parts of Baltimore are still impoverished and crime ridden and all of those things, let, we can have that discussion. But the idea that people are somehow subhuman if they live in these places that aren't exactly Trump Tower, it's not Fifth Avenue, New York, are somehow less than, that's the part about this that I can't take. I can't take it. Because th- I've said this before, and I said this when Trump was tweeting and uh, the racist stuff at the, at the squad. You know, it's about otherizing people. It's about the idea of go back to where you came from, where he also used the word infested. It, it's, it's making people, pitting people against each other. And I said that Donald Trump hates what makes this country great. What makes this country great is that people can come from nothing and be something. And there are American stories every day of that every day. And Donald Trump doesn't seem to get that. Not everybody was born with a silver freaking spoon in their mouths or had their daddy give them hundreds of millions of dollars to get their lives going like him. He's got some nerve. Now, most people made it. They came here with very little like my great grandparents did, or they, you know, like my husband who didn't exactly, who came from foster care in Brooklyn, New York, and in Southeast DC later on. Those weren't, those, were, those weren't great areas. I've got news for you. And my husband was able to make it. So he, you know, I, I, when Trump did that, and he's still tweeting away, and I, you know, who knows when this stops, but I just thought of how many people he's insulted with that. How many people in the, in the military who he brags about so much come from those places? How about the people who are in his Secret Service detail who protect him every day? How many of them came from those kinds of those places where he claims that no human being would ever want to live? How many? And then I thought about it and I thought, you know, I'm sorry. There are a whole lot of white areas in this country like Appalachia and others that aren't exactly Fifth Avenue. Hmm? Mississippi, the poorest state in the nation. A lot of those people that go in Alabama and all those other places in West Virginia that are driving hours and and camping out outside to go to Trump rallies. Um, How many of them come from poverty stricken, drug overdose having neighborhoods with no jobs and 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 people not exactly living in in a a penthouse apartment? Hmm? The thing about it, though, is that Trump does make fun of those people. But he's duped them. He doesn't do it to their faces. He does it behind closed doors. Believe me, I know. I've been told stories from people who have actually seen him do it. Of course, he loves the poorly educated, right? But he knows that there is a certain, a certain effect that he has when he tries to make it seem as like it's just people of color who live in these shithole areas, right? Why can't they go back to the shithole countries? Infested. Uh, it's It's... A disgrace. No president of the United States should be able to get away with this kind of crap. He's president of everyone, supposed to be. But here he is, catering to the worst, the worst, most debasing characteristics of our of our country. And he does it over and over again, and Republicans scamper away with their tails between their legs, a bunch of no bald bastards that allow him to keep doing this and they don't condemn it. They should, there should be full-throated condemnation. 
well, no, it wasn't racist. And bullshit, it's racist. He doesn't talk about the white trash uh, areas of the country like that ever, ever. So don't tell me it's not racist, okay? Stop it. And you know how this whole thing started? It goes back to this Fox News uh, echo chamber where Trump wakes up and goes to bed every day watching freaking Fox News. It's all he does. I don't know. You know, he does that. And he does these signing ceremonies. That's about it. He doesn't he doesn't go to briefings. He doesn't do anything else. And it, there was a he I guess he woke up on Saturday morning to a segment on Fox News by some black Republican wannabe chick in Baltimore. I don't even know her name. I've never heard of her. And she went and, and took some video of, of some poverty-stricken areas of, of Elijah Cummings' district. And then Fox News did a story about this, abandoned houses. And, and look, there's, like I said, I mean, there are parts of Baltimore that are pretty rough. It's bad. But we can talk about the, the policies behind that, not the implication that Trump was making. Let's be honest here. And I've got, I learned something, too. There's places in Baltimore with million-dollar houses. In Baltimore City proper, I had no idea. So, you know, that's what you get. There's, you know, Baltimore has a lot of culture. The harbor's beautiful. And, you know, any major area, you're going to have areas, you're going to have areas that aren't so great. So it was just ridiculous. And so within an hour of him seeing this, I'm assuming, this segment on Fox News, what did he do? He tweets out this, this attack on Elijah Cummings. And off it went. Off and running. But within a couple hours, uh, my CNN colleague, Victor Blackwell, he anchors the Saturday and Sunday morning newsroom shows. And Victor, I happened to be watching. And um, but I got up in the middle of him talking about how many times Trump has used the term infested, talking about people of color in their districts or as an insult to them. And I was like, here we go again. And now here we go again. And I actually got up to either go to the bathroom or get a drink of water or something. And I noticed that a tweet from uh, Bakari Sellers said that the segment that Victor just did is about to go viral and that it shook him to the core when he heard it in the green room. And I was like, wait, I was, what, what happened? So I rewound my, my uh, television and I watched the whole thing. And oh my gosh, I'm, I, Victor Blackwell did a, a catalog all of the racial insults that Trump has, has used against various people of color, especially elected officials, and how he's used the term infested to otherize people of color that he disagrees with, that and calling them stupid. Whether it's Maxine Waters or April Ryan, now Cummings, or civil rights icon John Lewis, all, I mean, it, the list was long. The squad. Now, I have ideological disagreements with most of those people, so, but it's not about that. There are Americans just like me. And at the end of his segment, Victor Blackwell, could, he, he, he you saw him start to well up. He got emotional. And I wasn't sure if it was anger or what, but he took a couple seconds to compose himself. And very emotionally, he said that he's from that district. He grew up there in Baltimore and that people who live there are proud of their communities and they work hard, just like every other American. And they pledge allegiance to the flag, just like every, any other American who, in any other part of this country. Just like his supporters do, and how dare he. I'll tell you what, I was, that it was, it was something to see. I retweeted it. If you haven't seen it, go Google it. It's very powerful. And Victor Blackwell was right. 
I don't know how far this is going to go. I don't know how much. I mean, Trump's tripling down, of course, on it. Days and days of this bullshit now. And then he turned around and called Elijah Cummings racist. I mean, stop it. Stop it. I just, you know, the way it tied into the, the Titus Burgess show is that I... I was like in tears at the end of his of his Wind Beneath My Wings um, rendition, not only just because it was just beautiful all the way around, but like I said, I looked around the theater and I thought like, there's so much beauty and talent and people come together from all walks of life all the time. And this president does nothing but insult America. He does nothing but insult this country and so chaos and discord and just hatred and racial animosity. I'm just sick of it. I'm sick of it. We have to keep speaking up against it. We really do, because this is this is going to tear us apart. It really and, and and if I have anything to say about it, I'm, I'm going to do my best to make sure it doesn't. But it's unfreaking acceptable. You know what else was unacceptable? The way that Republicans treated Bob Mueller. So the Mueller hearings happened, and like I said, I was I was a little disappointed in the way that Mueller came across. I know people are saying that, you know, all the optics, that's just a superficial way to look at things. He said some really substantive things during during his testimony. And that's true. He did. He reiterated that Trump was not exonerated. He reiterated the severity of the Russian attacks. Um, He also basically said it when Ted Lieu asked him, would you have prosecute, uh, would you have indicted Trump if it weren't for that Office of Legal Counsel memo that says a a president can't be indicted? And he clearly said yes. We all know that that's true. But he's bent over backwards to not appear political and, in my opinion, to his detriment to talk about fairness. Bob, Bob Mueller has said that it wouldn't be fair to recommend indictment to the president because he can't be indicted, which means that he can't have the same legal process or opportunity to defend himself as anybody else who were going through the criminal process. Now, this is just a memo. It's never been challenged in court. It's not a law. I wish somebody would challenge it because, I mean, you look at the what, what kind of an influence this president has. He can plenty defend himself, whether it's on the, he's got the bully pulpit. He's got freaking Twitter. He's got an entire news channel. I find it hard to believe that he can't properly defend himself against that. He seems to find plenty of time to watch television and jerk around uh, doing stuff that has nothing to do with official business. So this idea that it would be disruptive to the presidency, um, I beg to differ. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a constitutional expert on those kinds of, you know, legal issues. Just seems to me that Mueller was being just way too cautious here way too cautious. But when he said yes to Ted Lieu's question, and he also said that that the president could be indicted after he got out of office, Representative Ken Buck asked that, and I don't think he was expecting that answer. Well, if he could be indicted after he leaves office, then obviously there was some shit there that was indictable, right? Logically, if he couldn't be indicted afterward, because there was nothing there, if he was totally exonerated, he was clear of it all. Why would there? Why could he say? Why would he say yes? You could be indicted. He could be indicted after he leaves. Hello. But Mueller, I guess, realized that the headline was becoming. He he said it was the it was the memo. So there must be there were there were indictable offenses there, and I guess he didn't want the political headline to be that, even though it was true. And he walked it back in the afternoon when he was in front of the Intelligence Committee. But come on, we all know 
it was pretty clear. There was no way he misunderstood the question. I just think that he felt he had to do some damage control. And his just his performance was you couldn't get past it. He's clearly lost a few steps. He had not testified in front of Congress in six years. The guy's 74 years old. And I mean, he couldn't put a straight sentence together. It was frustrating because he could have he could have given the same answers, but been in more command of, of the actual report and not let Republican blowhards just get away with a lot of their BS. They were grandstanding at his expense, and it was so frustrating to watch. It was like, stand up for yourself. Stand up for your work product. Stand up. The only time he became animated was really when Republicans were questioning the integrity of his um, fellow prosecutors who worked with him on the investigation. And during the second half, when he was in front of the Intelligence Committee, talking more about the Russian interference part of it, volume one. Well, sure, as a former Marine, I'm sure he looked at what Trump was doing, what the campaign was doing, what Russia was getting away with. The fact that Donald Trump basically was like, hey, Russia, if you're listening, hack into emails. You know, I mean, I'm sure as just as an American, he was bothered by that. And you could see he got a little more animated in the second in the second half of the hearings. But the damage had been done in the first half. And it allowed these jerk offs like Matt Gates and Jim Jordan and this Ratcliffe, this representative Ratcliffe from Texas. I I never heard of him. Um, he got elected in 2015 or, or I mean, in 2014, assumed office in 2015. That was after I left the Hill. So I didn't know him first I'd seen of him and he berated he was one of the first to just berate Mueller and Mueller tried to answer he just cut him off and Mueller didn't like I said didn't really assert himself because he clearly didn't want to be there it was obvious and um, people started saying oh clearly Ratcliffe is auditioning for something well guess what he surely was so come to find out now that uh, Dan Coates former senator longtime senator very well respected on both sides of the aisle. He was the director of national intelligence under this administration. And he was one of the people who we thought was the adult, you know, one of the adults in the room, like Kelly, Mattis, McMasters. Those people were like, okay, well, at least we know we have a couple of adults in the room with this crazy ass Donald Trump. Well, all those people are gone. All of them. There are really no more adults in the room. Dan Coates has been at odds with Trump for almost from the very beginning, because he he was giving an honest assessment of what's going on in the world, honest about Iran, honest about uh, Russia, honest about North Korea, and his 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 uh, um, assessments were against the bullshit rhetoric that Donald Trump was trying to put out there. I mean, the job of the the, the DNI they oversee the seventeen intelligence agencies that make up our intelligence community, so CIA. Uh, DIA, um, you know, all the, all of the intellers, 17 of them, I'm not going to list them all, but there's a bunch, National Geospatial, they're the ones that satellite spies and NSA. So the DNI was created after 9-11 and it was created when the Department of Homeland Security was created because they wanted to figure out a way to consolidate um, the, the, uh, the intelligence community because there was so much separation and a lot of people didn't talk to each other prior to 9-11, which kind of led to 9-11, and they didn't want that to ever happen again. Now, there's been some criticism about how effective the DNI is and whether it's just bureaucratic and, and redundant, but 
Needless to say, it exists now and it's a pretty important position. And Dan Coates uh, was doing a good job and he was trusted by people and he knew he wasn't some partisan hack, which was most important. You know, you don't really want to politicize the intelligence community. And that's exactly what Trump has done. And now this guy, John Radcliffe, he's only been in Congress for two terms. He's now been named, Dan Coates has resigned. Radcliffe has been named as his successor. Last week, I talked about Devin Nunes, murmurings of him possibly being the DNI, potential next DNI. Well, thank God we didn't have that idiot. He's just an idiot. And a Trump lackey. So you can't, he's untrustworthy. So Nunes is out, but now this, this Radcliffe is in. And he is grossly unqualified to be the director of national intelligence. Nothing in his experience qualifies him. Who is he? He was the mayor of some town in Texas that's of only 7,000 people. There are offices in, in the intelligence agency bigger than that, okay? Now, he also was the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Texas in the last year of the Bush administration. And he claims on his official website that he prosecuted terrorists and threw them in jail. Well, a journalist looked into that and they couldn't find any prosecutions under his watch where a terrorist was prosecuted and went to jail in Texas. So what the hell is he talking about? He's only been on the Intelligence Committee since January. But what what, what qualifies him? Well, he thinks that the Obama administration should be investigated for, for crimes. Yeah. He also has gone after Mueller thinks that his that Mueller's report was was illegal. It wasn't. He's criticized, you know, the wild conspiracy theories about Clinton and the dossier and Putin and the Kremlin and how it's really Democrats who are in cahoots with the with the with the Russians. This guy is a partisan Trump lackey who has gone after the intelligence committee. He shouldn't be anywhere near the director of national intelligence. I hope Republicans you know, something, something either uncovered about this guy or enough Republicans say, I don't think it's a good idea to politicize the intelligence community like this. I don't know, but I'm worried about this. I'm worried about our national security. I mean, this is, this is insane. There's real shit going on that, that threatens the stability of this country. And we don't have any adults in the room. Maybe Gina Haspel over there at the CIA is still holding things together. But that's about it. That's about it. You know, Democrats this week, they've got the upcoming debate, second debate coming in, in Detroit. And I mean, by the time this airs, it'll be the first night, but we hadn't seen it yet. Um, of course, everyone knows that I support Joe Biden. He better show up and he better not do what he did last time. I suspect that he won't. But I'm telling you right now, these Democrats going after each other on shit that happened 40 years ago or 30 years ago, they are shooting themselves in the foot. Pay attention to what Donald Trump is doing. We need someone who is ready on day one. You don't get any more experience and more ready for the presidency than being the freaking vice president for eight years. Hello? We don't have time for these newcomers to come in and kind of figure it out. We don't have time for a learning curve, people. I may not agree with everything Joe Biden proposes p- 
policy-wise. But guess what? He cannot unilaterally implement any of these things. You still have to pass them through Congress. I want someone who knows what the hell they're doing that can start doing it on day one and that is and that is a decent person that loves this country that's not going to insult every walk of life that isn't, in their mind, equal to them. And Democrats, I, I warned about this uh, on CNN last week, you guys bringing up these race bull crap from 40 years ago, get the hell out of here with that. That's a huge mistake, people. Huge mistake. You need someone who can win Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, places like that, back from Republicans. And Joe Biden is that person. And he also understands foreign policy. He's been in the situation room. He's been there. So you guys need to get your heads out of your asses. And I hope that during the debate that Biden is able to showcase his experience and why he's ready on day one. And I hope he doesn't fall into the trap, the personal nonsense, because, you know, 20 people on the stage, someone's going to try and have a moment selfishly and try to mortally wound Biden. And these people like Kirsten Gillibrand, who don't stand a snowball's chance in hell of getting the nomination, are going to try to kneecap him again for what? A short-term boost? It's ridiculous. Ridiculous. The next uh, debate is in September. ABC sponsors it. It's in Houston. And a lot of these vanity candidates that have, don't have a shot will not, will not be on the stage. We don't have time to mess around here. One of my favorite movies is Crimson Tide with Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman. I love that movie. I could watch it a million times. And there's a scene where Denzel and Gene Hackman are at odds over whether they should launch a a preemptive nuclear strike from their nuclear submarine because there's a rogue Russian general that that became, um, took over nuclear weapons in in Russia and they didn't know whether he was going to launch or not. And they lose communication with the outside world because of a torpedo attack. So they don't know, are they supposed to launch or not? And it, that, I love that movie. It's so intense. The scene, the acting, everything is great. Anyway, so there's a scene where Gene Hackman is, he's the one who wants to launch. You know, he's like the old school kind of rogue military guy. And I mean, he's kind of right. How do we know that the Russians aren't launching bombs and we got to stop them? And Denzel Washington being kind of the, the Naval Academy guy that's really thoughtful. He's like, yeah, but what if it's not? And we start with World War III. We have to make sure we can get the completed message. And Gene Hackman says, they're fueling their birds. We don't have time to fuck around. That's kind of how I feel about this upcoming election. We don't have time to fuck around, people. We don't. So that's my two cents on all of that. (laughs) And with that said, um, I want to bring in my guest, Michael Weiss, because guess what? The Russians aren't messing around. They're still doing what they're doing while we're over here arguing over bullshit from 40 years ago. Um, the Russians are happily attacking our country and attacking our election system. And I don't think we're prepared. Let's see what Michael Weiss has to say about that. So on this week's edition of Honestly Speaking, I thought that it was important to bring someone in who really studies what's going on with Russia. Uh, In light of the Mueller testimony, the Senate Intelligence Committee report, I just really think that people need to understand the gravity of what Russia's doing. And no better person than 
journalist, Daily Beast columnist, Michael Weiss. He's been doing this and studying this for quite some time and reporting on it. And he's written several stories. He's written uh, co-authored reports. And he also is the co-author of an upcoming book on Russia. Michael Weiss, thank you for joining me and Honestly Speaking. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, I, uh, I, I just find it fascinating for people who are in this arena watching what's going on on a daily basis with the president, the dynamic with Putin and Russia, and then what our intelligence uh, community has been screaming about since the 2016 elections. Um, What foreign policy folks like yourself think about this? Um, When you saw the Mueller testimony last week, especially the Senate intelligence part, I'm not going to get into the the, the first part of that hearing because um, that's a different, that's a legal ballgame. I want to talk about Russia Mm -hmm. and what's happening. What was your initial yeah. reaction to that part of the testimony? Well, look, um, you know, it, it, just to start with the, the optics of the whole thing, and, and this has been much commented upon, but I actually don't fault Mueller for being sort of a dud of a, of a witness. I mean, right. this is a guy who really didn't want to go before Congress. Everything he had to say uh, is contained in the 400 plus page report, which he and his staff put out and which is actually uh, really a treasure trove of information and things that merits revisiting and, and scrutinizing all over again in light of, you know, constant um, uh, news developments and headlines. And, you know, the, the Mueller investigation might have ended, but the things he was looking into have not. And I mean, the first thing I should say is the disclosure that there are ongoing counterintelligence investigations still mm-hmm. um, that are outside of the remit of the special counsel's office, but that the FBI are, are undertaking. That's significant because, you know, counterintelligence is stopping foreign spies from stealing information or interfering in your society or your political system. So that would suggest to me that, yeah, there's, there, there is some smoke and fire about what the Russians were doing, perhaps at the human intelligence level. Now, what's human intelligence? That's, that's old school, conventional uh, tradecraft, uh, the kind of things you, you'd see in the Americans, for instance. Right. People-to-people interaction as opposed to cyber warfare, hacking, uh, and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, look. Kind of enshrouded in all of the, the the partisan punditry and the back and forth, uh, you know, between Democrats and Republicans, are just some core basic facts. Fact one: Russia's military intelligence agency, known as the GRU, dispatched two different cyber operative teams. The, the, the teams have been named. The individuals that that, that 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 make up the teams have been named by their 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 given Russian names in in a Mueller indictment. They were guilty of infiltrating through spear phishing attempts, the servers, uh, email accounts of Democratic Party officials. They were guilty of doing the same thing with respect to John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's um, campaign manager, uh, for the purposes of stealing as much information as possible, putting it out there and weaponizing it so that Hillary Clinton, if she didn't lose the presidency, she would have come into the White House, a much bruised and damaged politician, and the country would have been so polarized. Uh, they got lucky in that Donald Trump won. Um, and I think, though, in one respect, they were unlucky, which is the, the cardinal rule of all espionages don't get caught. Right? Right, right. When you get caught, the game is up. These guys got caught. 
And the question that I kind of go back and forth with, and I, I try to canvass as many opinions as possible from former U.S. intelligence officers to Cold War historians, is this a kind of changing nature of the way the Russians are plying their trade? So in other words, you know, back in the days of the KGB, to do an active measure, which is, you know, cooking up some bit of disinformation or even taking a truth or a half-truth, but for the purpose of, of, of turning it into this tool to attack and undermine your enemy, um, you would want to cover your, 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 your tracks comprehensively. Um, to get caught and outed would have been a, 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 an intelligence failure. These days, though, things are a bit different in that Putin's spies and, and his political operatives, they have a sense of humor. There's a kind of postmodern cast to the way they, they go about things, which is to say, and I mean, you see this a lot when you deal with their state propagandists, such as RT and Sputnik. The line that they put out is not, hey, we're lying to you, or rather, hey, we're not lying to you, we're telling the truth. We want to convince you that, you know, the sky is blue and water is wet. No, it's wink and a nudge, yeah, we're lying to you, and yeah, we're, we're trafficking and bullshit, but then again, everybody does it. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember the Iraq War, remember the WMD scare. We're no different from the New York Times. The only thing that makes us special is at least we acknowledge that we're subjective and not objective. And also, and isn't, about, there, isn't there an aspect of it where they almost want us to know that they're doing, yes. doing this? Exactly, yeah. and that, that leads me back. I, I took a little sinuous path here, but it leads me back to my original point about does this now translate to the level of espionage? So in other words, if the GRU didn't really care that they were caught, perhaps it's because the minute that the United States found out the Russians had meddled in our election, the Russians axiomatically win. Because right now we're having this conversation, half the country is, I mean, you know, the the country's been torn apart at the cultural and political level. Uh, Many people still even after the Mueller report, believe that Donald Trump is a paid-up asset or controlled agent of the Russian government, something I never believed. And we can get into sort of the the, the intricacies and the the gray areas and all that stuff. But it doesn't matter. Um, The Kremlin is happy because every day you turn on the television, every day you open the newspaper, and Vladimir Putin is seen as this strategically brilliant puppet master who has controlled and manipulated not just our liberal democracy, but other liberal democracies throughout Europe. Now, of course, there's some truth to that. There is truth to the fact that he has has, has interfered in the domestic affairs of his his enemies. Um, but we're we somewhat play into their hands, meaning the Russians' hands, because we we give them more credit than than they're due. Um, you know, for instance, I don't think that there's anybody sitting in either, you know, the, 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 the presidential administration in Moscow or in any of the security services who can say, you know, hand on heart, um, we know for sure we swung the 2016 election. The ambiguity of that outcome, the ambiguity of what the Russian contribution was versus what our own contribution was. I mean, remember, disinformation, um, you know, nobody, nobody put a gun to the heads of major media organizations and said, you must publish these stolen DNC files or these stolen pedestrian files. We chose to do that. Thus, basically stepping into a trap that had been laid for us by a hostile foreign power. So what the Russians are quite adept at doing, and I mean, Mueller doesn't get into this much, but I am because that's kind of what fascinates and intrigues me. What they're adept at doing is seeing the kind of pre-existing natural pathologies of American society and simply attaching themselves to it parasitically. 
Um, and that's just to, just to theory. stop you for a second. That, yeah. uh, that aspect of it, I think, is important for people to realize how uh, patient and strategic the Russians can be when it comes to the United States. In the Mueller report in volume one, it talks about how they sent people over here years mm-hmm. prior to the election to study what yeah, was going no. on, to basically do recon so that they became pretty familiar with what's going on in our culture, society, where the hot buttons are, what to do. So they this this they're very good at knowing us and had and our vulnerabilities, yeah. right? Exactly. They very rarely invent um, information products or conspiracy theories or bits of fault or, you know, sort of vast schemes of falsehood. The one exception to this, which actually surprised me, was the Seth Rich murder conspiracy theory, oh, which yeah. David Isikoff at Yahoo basically outed as an SVR uh, active measure. Now, that's interesting because that, that suggests oh, they, they actually did um, get their hands dirty and getting creative and planting something in American zeitgeist, or at least the dark corners of the American zeitgeist. But usually, look at all the other things, right? Pizzagate. That's a homespun conspiracy mm-hmm. theory. Jack Prasobiec and, and the sort of alt-right on Twitter and social media. That was their uh, inference from the Podesta email. And, uh, and so just many for, other people who like don't, for people who don't follow yeah. this the way we do, uh, the Pizzagate scandal, uh, the con- uh, Conspiracy theory was basically that Hillary Clinton's campaign was child trafficking out of a pizza place in northwest Washington, D.C. And some lunatic went there with a gun, shot up the place, thinking that he was going to rescue these kids. That was insane. Luckily, no one died. So that's a perfect example, because that that was an American concocted. I mean, not, not just a conspiracy theory. I mean, just a, a bit of lunacy, which led to an act of violence. But mm-hmm. what the Russians very adroitly did was they, they seized upon that and they amplified it. And, and then they the said, Seth, and then the Seth, right. And the Seth Rich controversy, right. which is even more insidious because someone lost their life. Um, they took yeah. they took this. He was a DNC staffer um, and people were trying to claim that he worked in the IT department at the DNC. And therefore, he was somehow involved in the hacking and was murdered because of it when actually right. he was killed in dc i think it was uh it was late at night and i don't know it was a robbery attempt or something like that but it had it was it had nothing to do with a conspiracy theory with russian hacking but people like sean hannity and fox news gave life to this and it was really awful what 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 it did to the seth rich family and just you yeah. know, shame on them for doing it so just just sort of and so what, they, they keep their conspiracy yeah. theory straight unfortunately right right and what's, what's fascinating about that is it, it's sort of evidence against this uh, half-worn thesis of mine, which is the Russians are kind of okay with being caught. Because in this case, Seth Rich was used as a red herring to distract from what the GRU had done. So if the SVR, which is Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service, concocted this alternative explanation for how the DNC was hacked and how all of the correspondence was given to WikiLeaks, they're just covering their tracks. So in that case, it suggests strongly they didn't want to get caught. But, but by and large, I mean, you know, if you look at the crudity and the, just the lack of sophistication and the self-contradictory nature of Russian propaganda and disinformation these days, everything from MH17 to the Skripal assassination in Salisbury, England, mm-hmm. to uh, ongoing efforts, I mean, you know, it, it, they just really don't care about putting on this facade that we didn't do it. In fact, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, came out not long after uh, the Washington Post had 
basically stated that the DNC had been compromised by Russian hackers. I think it was an interview with uh, Christian Amanpour, and he said, uh, well, we didn't deny it, but they didn't prove it. So again, you know, kind of tricksy, wink, wink. We want you to know that we know. Right. We want you to know that we did it. We are not going to admit that we did it. But so what? Now you can go um, tie yourself up in knots and cannibalize yourself as a society trying to figure out exactly what else we might have done, what we didn't do, what's your own fault, what's our fault. I mean, they love it. It's, it's a circus. It's a game for them. And, um, and, and if you don't Mueller, believe that it isn't, all you have to do is look at uh, the pictures of Sergei Lavrov, who was laughing it up with the president in the Oval Office the day oh, after course. he fired James Comey, which I'm sure, of course. you know, I know of my friends in the intelligence community were horrified by the fact that they were even in the Oval Office because they're all a bunch of Russian assets and that the president was so welcoming of these people and they were just having a good old time. <laughs> That's and not only that, but is. the president had compromised a piece of U.S. That's intelligence right. about ISIS. That's right. Burning the Israeli sources for it. So, yeah, I mean, there's all of that. Um, but then, you know, so Mueller gets up and he says, well, he was asked, do, do you know, do you think the Russians are going to do it again in 2020? He says not only that, but they're currently doing it now. And for sure, um, you know, everything from Yevgeny Prigozhin's uh, Internet Research Agency or the so-called St. Petersburg Troll Farm. So what that is. And that's is all in the Mueller very, report, by the way, for folks who don't all know. All in the Mueller report. All and, in you know, volume this, one. This is, this is again, um, a, a sort of testament to the adaptive nature of these Russian um, political intelligence campaigns. So Turgosian is himself not a spy. He's an oligarch. Um, he's euphemistically known as Putin's chef because he, he made his fortune with this catering company. And But he's doing two important things for the Russian state. Number one, he is paying people um, to work 12-hour shifts basically to shitpost on the internet, to, to, to put out, you know, comments, to troll, and to do so under the guise of Americans. And again, if you look at the bits that Mueller uh, sort of analyzed in his report, nothing that the troll farm is doing is, is, is an invention of Russian political technologists. So in other words, they're seizing upon things like Black Lives Matter. They're seizing upon the, the MAGA Trump Mm-hmm. Um, cultural phenomenon. And they're taking means, they're right. taking things, and they're amplifying it, and yep. they're passing themselves off as Americans. So there's another aspect of this, which is um, identity masquerade, or in some cases, identity theft. I mean, Mueller, Mueller also indicted people for going on social media and stealing the identities, the names and the surnames of actual Americans, and then creating these sock puppets, well, not, not, you're supposed not a sock puppet account, creating accounts under the guise of these Americans, but really the accounts were run by Russians. Now, the thing about Fergosian's troll farm is it's, I mean, a Paris state actor. It, it, it exists at the pleasure of the Kremlin, but it's privately financed. That's the, that's the way things have changed. Back in the Cold War, if this were 1984, the KGB had its own department dedicated right. to active measures. It, this would be, that would, it, would, would have been run out of the services. Now it doesn't have to be because it can be privatized. But, but it, even but, private, you know, privatized endeavors like this in Russia do not happen unless the government has allowed them right. to happen and that's unless they're doing the, the, the bidding of the government. Right, so like right. The and GRU, that's why there's a lot of like, confusion. Yeah, it's like a public-private partnership here in the attack. Exactly. Box. Yeah. Um, that now, actually, on the other side, mm-hmm. but yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, so, you know, Mueller comes out in this testimony, says the Russians are still at it. 
Then you read the Senate Intelligence Committee report on election meddling. Which is where I was going. Which is actually so a report that, was a good, that, that was a good segue. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, the reason I bring it up is in many respects, it's more significant to my mind than a lot of the chatter commentary, not, not more significant than the Mueller report itself, but certainly the, the attendant commentary of the Mueller report, because it shows beginning in 20, I think even 14, but really the, the, the actual cyber espionage, the GRU, again, Russia's military intelligence, I counted in that report, managed to target or penetrate 16 different state election infrastructure systems. And that's not to say they went in and they started changing people's votes, but they went in and they started sniffing around voter rolls, voter registration logs, that kind of thing. And in one case in Illinois, according to this report, they had access to something like 14 million registered voters. And the data consisted not just of first and last name, date of birth, address, but also partial social security numbers and full driver's license or government ID numbers. Now with that information, you can do identity theft in a, in a more major key than you can by stealing someone's Facebook account, for instance. And you can do several other things. You can create, you know, fake troll accounts to be run out of St. Petersburg and to do kind of an online masquerade, or to bring it back to the human intelligence side, you can create what's known as legends. So spies, if you're an illegal, so I mean, for your audience, like if you've watched the Americans, right, that couple, they were planted in the United States under the, you know, with false identities. They pretended to be American citizens all the while they're, they're KGB spies. So if you're that kind of um, operative, you need a legend or a backstory. Uh, and it's not just here's a, a fake ID. It, it's, you know, here's a paper trail leading. You know, if I say that I went to Princeton, I need some kind of digital or, or paper record showing that, yeah, somebody under this name went to Princeton and, you know, that kind of thing. You stealing American identities is a great way to create legends for future use for human spies that might come into the United States, be run out of the consulate uh, in Los Angeles, where I live, or the embassy in D.C., or the, uh, the mission to the United Nations in New York. Um, the GRU, the Military Intelligence Agency, which is distinct from the SSB and the SVR, which are the two agencies that sort of were born from the ashes of the old KGB, they also run spies. They also have illegal. They also have people who are living undercover in the United States and Europe. And I guarantee what Mueller is also referring to here is they're absolutely um, conducting that kind of conventional espionage. They're absolutely waging these sorts of digital or cyber probing exercises to test the resiliency and the um, I guess the, the, the strength of government computer systems, everything from election infrastructure to power grids to nuclear technology. Um, and yeah, they will try to fuss with everything again. Um, in fact, I think they did more in 2018 in the midterms than we give them credit for and it's yet come to light. These things take years sometimes to piece together. But in 2020, well, just it's before just you be, before you do that, yeah. I, just to, to kind mm -hmm. of so people can let that sink in. Basically, what you're saying is that part of the, the Russians hacking um, purpose is not only just to mess around possibly with the election equipment or to change votes. Maybe we don't know that yet, but also to steal information about Americans where they can basically assume false identities and create a false 
um, history of who they are when they're here in the yes. U.S. So this is like the stuff that we see in movies or shows, like you said, like the right. Americans or like, uh, you know, Red Sparrow or all these things where we imagine that this that's just the movies. No, that's right. what the Russians are actually doing. And that's what the Senate Intelligence Committee has found in their report. That's what the New York Times uh, article alluded to with some of the activities that the Russians are doing. And that's also what the Mueller report talked about when they talked about how they infiltrated different information for different uh, election yeah. uh, offices throughout the country. And they said it could be up and to And by the way, they don't, even, they don't even need to, to, to go that full bore and sophisticated. So all they would have to do, and, and remember, you know, the, the rule with screwing up an election is similar to the rule with terrorism, frankly. You know, we have to be lucky every single time to stop the bad guys. The bad guys only have to be lucky once. Right. So if the Russians really wanted to destroy American democracy or in 2020, let us say, given who the incumbent president is, given the parlous state of our electorate now and given the hypervigilance, dare I say, paranoia with which we're approaching all this stuff, all they would have to do is not even, I mean, forget about changing votes, which is quite difficult to do. All they would have to do is go into a voter registration system and start changing you know, one digit in the address of a registered voter or a series of registered voters. So for instance, you know, they could take my address and transpose the, two, the first two numbers such that if I turn up to a polling place on election day, um, the, the, whoever the, the, the official is there says, show me your ID, here's my ID. Well, this is a different address from what we have. It causes confusion. It causes chaos. And if it happens in enough numbers, and then after the fact, people are like, well, wait a minute, this is a result of cyber meddling, you've, you've blown up an entire election. It could happen mm-hmm. in one district, in one state. It wouldn't have to be comprehensive. It wouldn't have to target all 50 states. It wouldn't have to, you, you could do it to a few thousand people. It would be the front page story of the New York Times. It would be on every cable news channel. And all of a sudden, we would be, again, sort of devouring our own tails, trying to figure out what else was compromised? Or is this a legitimate election? And then Even Trump, a, if he right. were to be reelected, exactly. would also decry this and say, you see, it's rigged. So it would, it would plunge the United States into a deeper level of chaos and confusion. And again, chef's kiss. That's all they need to do. It's, 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 it doesn't require that much effort. Let me ask you a question. Um, and that's where liberal democracy is. Yeah, right. go ahead. Right. Let me ask you a question about that. Um, in the in the Senate Intelligence Report, uh, I think it was that report. I mean, I've read so many, but they all kind of <laughs> they, they they come together with similar conclusions. Uh don't they talk about how the Russians requested to people to um, uh, go to polling places and be election, quote, watchers? And the State Department was like, not no, but hell no. Um, they- well, that's yes, but that's not I would I would put that in a discrete category. So that's what what they really love to do is moral equivalence. Um, so, for instance, if the United States or the uh, OSCE comes out and says, the last Duma election was not free and fair. You know, thousands of complaints of uh, double voting or what they call carousels, where they take the same person around to different polling places and he casts multiple uh, votes. Uh, all of these things that allow Putin to run uh, an undemocratic system. The Russians then turn to the United States and say, well, what about your electoral fraud? What about hanging chads in Florida and the Supreme Court deciding a vote? It's, it's, so for them, it's sending Russian. guys what from the embassy to observe, <laughs> exactly, sending guys from the embassy to observe as though the U.S. democracy was on the same 
right. lackluster footing right. as Russian non-democracy. And that's just their way of trolling us. So it wouldn't that be so me as much as it wouldn't be that they Pergosian were also kind of like, st- like studying what's going on so that they could see how there were vulnerabilities. You think it was more of just like, well, if you do it to us, we're going to do it to you as a tit for tat. Yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't it wouldn't make much sense to send. I mean, even spies under diplomatic cover sent to observe elections. They're still there as Russian diplomats. They're too conspicuous. It's not a great place to do that kind of reconnaissance. I'm more concerned about, you know, okay, so in the Mueller report, as you mentioned earlier, Pergosian sent, I think it was two, maybe more um, of his political operatives to the United States that they tromped around going to district to district, different states, basically canvassing opinion. They were doing their own polling, right? Yep. Um, they were trying to figure out what areas to target most because these are the areas that, you know, the, 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 the political divide was at its most extreme or, you know, the Republicans had a better chance than the Democrats or it was, it was on a knife edge, whatever. That's what, what concerns me. It would be people that you and I wouldn't identify as being operatives coming here and doing that sort of thing. Um, but look, I, I'm not reading that Intel Committee report, even with their sort of baseline recommendations, um, you know, no, no, no voting booths that kept hookups to the, the internet so that they're susceptible to a cyber attack, no booths that have exposed USB drives so someone can stick a thumb drive in and upload malware, paper ballots as backup. All of these things are well and good, but I'm more concerned with, as I say, the kind of meta stuff yeah, the Russians in- could do that's interesting. around an election. Because I think somebody else- I mean, they, they decommissioned, they de- just to give you a sense of just how, I mean, they decommissioned one of these voting machines and found that the password on it was ABC123. <laughs> that was in the Intel Committee report. Right. Um, so it just goes to show, uh, you know, all of our state administrators who are in charge of these elections. I mean, you wouldn't have to do much to to find chinks in the armor here right um, and and i was gonna say that they also i can't remember w- which report it was but it was mentioned that physically they had like some kind of hacker competition right because they were trying to see what how um secure these election systems were and it took someone like 15 seconds to hack into an election yeah um a machine with uh you know with a thumb drive if they had physical access, it took them 15 seconds to upload whatever that malware was and, and fuck up the election system, basically. Right. Um, and and people were horrified by this, which leads me into something that you've been discussing and you've written about, which is what the hell is Mitch McConnell doing n- blocking all of these election security bills that are being put forth? Because people are, you know. Members of Congress are looking at these reports and they're going, um, we need to do something to fix this. Why yeah. is Mitch McConnell so, okay. so let's, opposed let's, to fixing it? Let's take it on a, on a spectrum from most generous to most cynical. <laughs> most generous. Republicans, what's their big thing um, ideologically? Well, you uh, used to be their big thing ideologically before the era of Trump. States' rights. States' rights, yep. Triumph over the federal government, right? Right. Keep so it local. We don't want charge. the feds. You know, as a as a right. uh, suffering, long suffering Republican, I understand those arguments about we don't want sure. the, an overarching federal government coming in and telling our local sure. localities how to run their elections. But we're in a bit exactly. of a different so, different environment here. And so this, but so the, the Senate Intel Committee report was basically saying, look, these are the, the least we should do is have paper ballot system backup. Um, we do need some measure of federal um, 
immunization, for lack of better term. We need, we need federal authority to coordinate cybersecurity for our election infrastructure. We cannot allow, we cannot leave this to states and municipal governments because they don't have the resources to do it. And as, as Ron Wyden put it in his minority view attached to that report, because remember, it's a Republican-led right. committee. And why, why um, the, the minority the view, he said, look, member. If you, you wouldn't entrust, uh, this isn't like Red Dawn, you wouldn't entrust the local <laughs> sheriff to fight off Russian planes and missiles and tanks. Why would you trust the local government to fight off the GRU? He didn't use Red Russian Dawn as an example, though, even though that's a great 80s reference. Movie he didn't. Use, and it actually wasn't the local sheriff. It was the kids. Right. <laughs> right. So you wouldn't trust <laughs> you wouldn't trust Midwestern children to fight off cyber hackers. Why would you? And he's right. I mean, th- th- there needs to be some. And it's not just the federal government administering all elections. That's, sure. That's a red herring. That's that's not the right. Uh, you know, that, that's the Republican way of, of, of trying to say this is an ideological partisan thing. No, it's have the federal government create a kind of security framework or infrastructure to protect all states so the states can administer their own damn election. So that's the most generous uh, case for McConnell. The most cynical is, look, a few weeks ago, the president is interviewed by George Stephanopoulos and is asked, you know, would you accept, again, um, compromise foreign uh, help or information on your opponent from a foreign government? And, and Trump like, basically sure. said, I mean, he hadn't been hawed, but yeah. he's like, yeah. He's like, I'd want to know what it, it consisted of if it was good. Maybe I'd call the FBI. Maybe I wouldn't. I've never called the FBI before in my life. So he's inviting not just the Russians, but any comer to interfere in the 2020 election. And look, the, the president of the United States, also the standard bearer of his party. And if the standard bearer of the Republican Party is saying, Russia, if you're listening, let's do it all over again. Then why wouldn't Mitch McConnell agree with that? That's um, so hard and- to swallow, you know, as an American, not only as a Republican to hell with that. I'm so I'm so despondent over and disgusted by what the Republican Party apparatus has become under Trump. I'm just uh, it's 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 I, there's no words for it anymore. But as an American, mm. it's like, come on, Mitch McConnell, you've been doing this for decades, almost as long as I've been alive and I'm over 40. Um, how do you as an American, how does he not see that this is compromising our the integrity of our our republican democratic election system i just don't understand how he well it's also it's 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 incredibly short-sighted and stupid too because this isn't about stopping putin from getting trump reelected. this is about stopping foreign governments from interfering not just on the democratic side but also on the republican side well, uh, you, so wrote, instance, you wrote about say, this, right? You wrote about this in well, the Daily I Beast, I, right? You wrote an article that said Trump invited new Russia info about opponents. And you said the truth, the trouble of inviting foreign countries into your political system is that they never leave. Yeah. Well, they, I, I made the case about what Russia has been up to in Europe and in, right. in not so liberal or even outright illiberal Europe for close to two decades now. But just forget about that for a second. Let's say you're Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, which, by the way, had their own team of cyber operatives and hackers, um, and you are quite down on U.S. sanctions. Um, you don't like this president because you feel like he is ratcheting up pressure on the Islamic Republic, and you feel the best chance you have of sort of loosening the, the stranglehold on your economy is to get a Democratic president in power. So what if the IRGC starts hacking the chiefs of staff of Republican senators or start hacking Mitch McConnell himself. Is Mitch McConnell then going to come out and say, well, you know, having some kind of cybersecurity framework 
for our nation's legislators and our nation's election systems is a partisan, a par- petty party political <laughs> issue that's only being done by Democrats because they hate Trump. Mm-hmm. By the way, these bills that he keeps locking, it's not like they were written 30 seconds after Mueller stopped testifying. He said, oh, this is a dog and pony show after the Mueller testimony. No, these things take months that's to right. cook up. That's correct. And some it's, of only, them it's only by happenstance. Right. Right. So, so you know, <laughs> yes, he is. He is fashioning a rod for his own back with this. Um, and look, I mean, I was banging on about, you know, when, when Mitt Romney in 2012 said Russia's our number one geopolitical foe, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of snickering about this, That's uh, particularly right. from Obama Democrats and liberals. The 80s oh, you know, foreign policy back. I remember yes. it well. And now and now there's there's two ironies. So conservatives will say, aha, you see, now all these Democrats, they're like Whitaker Chambers. You know, Russians are hiding under our beds. Everyone is. It's red baiting. It's McCarthyism. They've gone hysterical. Where were they when we were talking about Putin and his his awful Kremlin? Well, okay, but you can turn that around, can't you? And say, right. So the Republicans, the the foreign policy hawks and the the anti-Putin internationalists a la John McCain, where have you guys all gone? Mm-hmm. where you're doing the work of the Russian security services by trafficking in the same disinformation that they want you to believe is the case. Right. Which Throwing cold water right. on the idea that they That's interfered right. in the election. That's right. It's, it's just also insidious. I mean, I worked for Congressman Dana Rohrabacher for seven years. Mm-hmm. And I never oh, boy. Said, I, uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Was, uh, yes. But you know what? I, 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 I still have love and affection for Dana, and I never really was uh, – there was only two issues that I didn't fully – uh, support him on and one was his view of Russia yeah. the other was the legalization of marijuana which I've come around a little bit more on but I always felt as though that his position on Russia was too idealistic but tenable before Putin Crimea Ukraine after that I was like Dana come on I understand you want to try to have better relations we need them with the war on terror and all that stuff but uh, this is not you know you're off base here but he was hell-bent on strengthening relations and he's not a Russian he's not a you know because, Putin but, puppet and all that, what, but what's interesting what's interesting to me about that and you know leaving aside yeah you know some of the, the more alarmist takes yes. like oh you know another controlled asset right no. she's not look there, there has always been a very it used to be a small but but still prominent strain among particularly Reagan conservative Republicans who after the Cold War after the wall came down after Russia became not a superpower, but, you know, another great power in the making. And particularly after Putin donned the vestments of patriotism, orthodoxy, which is to say religiosity, um, and cultural conservatism, have looked to Moscow as the new, not the new Rome, but I mean the new Jerusalem, I suppose, for their kind of quasi-religious cultural crusade. Uh, Pat Buchanan, of course, made this you know, this argument long before anybody else did. Rohrabacher, I think. Rohrabacher fell for the, one of the oldest tricks the Russians have been peddling since the 90s, which is, hey, you guys uh, have a problem with terror. We have a problem with terror. Right. Let's team up and bash the Islamists and the jihadists together. That's right. The problem is <laughs> Russia doesn't really care no. about jihad. I mean, it cares about jihad when it comes home, but it, it, it uses that as a pretext to go after dissidents and yes. particularly veterans from the, the first and second Chechen wars. Yep. Um, and that's the intelligence it wants from the United States. It doesn't care about Al Qaeda. It certainly doesn't care about ISIS. I mean, they claim they went into Syria just to smash ISIS. But if you look at, at, at IHS Jane's defense 
did a report, a comprehensive report, only 15% of the time were they dropping bombs on ISIS. Right, the rest so the was, other 85% on, was on uh, women, the children, rebels. hospitals, That's right. FSA, yep. other Islamist groups, but yep. not ISIS. That's um, right. And it was just so, for them to get a yeah, stronghold it, there in the region, which is all always part of their hegemonic uh, you know, desires. And, and I know I agree with you. And I was very disappointed in Dana's posture after that. I mean, I left his office in 2013. So it was after my tenure with him where most of the egregious stuff on Russia happened. But but it just seems like so many of these Republicans, they know better, but yet they they're all of a sudden now Russia apologists, which is insane to me. It's just absolutely well, the other insane. the other. I think the other delusion that they're falling for um, is what I call the Michael Flynn delusion, which is, you know, Flynn's grand strategy for the 15 minutes he was national security advisor was team up with Moscow to isolate Tehran. So they, they think that Russia will become our friend in encircling and containing Iran. Now, that just ain't going to happen. Right. It couldn't happen even if Putin wanted to do it, because as one SVR officer actually told me, um, without Hezbollah and Iranian-run militias in Syria, Russia's goose is cooked. Russia has good air power, but they're not, they're not running a conventional ground war. That, that all falls to Iran, which is the reason, by the way, that Idlib province, despite weeks of massive aerial assault, could not be retaken by Assad. I think he gained 1% of territory back. Mm -hmm. Why? Because Iran completely stayed out of that fight. Right. So Iran is also signaling to Russia, even if you think about selling us out, to the Americans, um, we can do stuff to, to blow up your spot in, this in the Middle East, yes, too. In the region. It's, it's, so. it's just crazy. Um, we have a few more minutes. You've been so generous with your time. I appreciate this. This is such a fascinating subject matter because it's, it, it, there's, it's such a tangled web. And there's, so, it, there's many facets to this, not only with what's happening in the U.S. and the, the, the dynamics there, but just geopolitically, this is much bigger than just the Russians decided to meddle in our in our elections. I mean, they attacked us. They continue to attack us. Mueller said that they're attacking us as we speak. Um, give a couple examples of where they're also doing this in Europe, because I think people need to realize that this is a global effort by Russia. It's a global effort. And, and I mean, Europe has always been the, the sort of test laboratory for things that get exported farther westward. So, um, OK, for instance, uh, in Hungary, I think it was in 2015, um, it was discovered that a an elderly, I think he was in his 80s, an elderly Hungarian neo-Nazi was training up a militia. Um, using paintball guns and basically trying to instruct them in, in infantry tactical fighting. Jeez. But the real capper was that the people overseeing this operation were GRU officers, so Russian military intelligence spies, who were working out of the embassy in Budapest under diplomatic cover and basically doing a little bit of weekend warrioring where they'd go and teach Hungarian fascists how to use paintball guns, which is to say, teach them how to shoot real guns. <laughs> um, police, the Hungarian police raided this compound, and one Hungarian cop got shot and killed. And because Viktor Orban is the, I mean, in a way, the, the Trump avant-garde left, I mean, the, 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 the premier illiberal Democrat who's been more or less in power 20 years and uninterrupted and has really transformed Hungary from a promising post-Soviet uh, satellite State into, you know, a kind of authoritarian uh, government. Uh, and um, recently welcomed thing, with open arms by the president in the White House. He was in the U.S. Course. recently. Well, of course. I mean, Bannon, Bannon Adam is, to the list. is very tight with Orban. 
Um, but anyway, so, you know, this whole thing was kind of swept under the rug. And what's fascinating is that a top Hungarian counterintelligence official who had recently retired gave an interview to a Hungarian newspaper in which he said, I mean, in, in, as best he possibly could, um, yeah, you know, this is the kind of thing, you know, the fact that the GRU, that Russian military intelligence, was training a neo-Nazi fifth column on Hungarian soil, and was, this was known to the intelligence services here, and certainly known to the prime minister's office, and they were doing this with impunity for so long, speaks to the political corruption and the political bedfellowism between Budapest and Moscow. So that's one example, which is quite stark and not really well known in, in the English-speaking um, press because it wasn't covered here. What about um, Brexit? There's been, you know, what about what's going on in England? Yeah. Because there's a lot of turmoil happening over there, too, that I think, again, gets lost in what's happening with us. But there's a lot of shit going on with, with the whole Brexit thing. And Russia had some influence in, in that whole effort, too, didn't they? There, there is some stuff. So there's a, a reporter, Carol Cudwaller, who uh, writes for The Observer, um, which is a, a prominent uh, British broadsheet. And she's been banging on for ages about the Russian influence in the Brexit campaign and was dismissed at first as a crazy cat lady by all of the people she was writing about. <laughs> but then it turns out, no, there's actually some there there. So there's a guy, his name is, is escaping me, but if I spent two seconds on the computer, I could... Uh, um, uh, Aaron Banks, that's his name. So Aaron Banks was one of the main architects um, of Brexit. And it turns out Aaron Banks has had some kind of interaction with Russian interests uh, who were offering him all sorts of cushy. See, the way it works is they don't come with bags of cash, particularly to Western politicians. They, they, they come bearing corporations and companies and trade deals and saying, you, you will get a finder's fee or you'll get a big slice off the top. So this had to do with, I think, um, mining operations. Mm. Uh, either in Russia or I haven't followed the Brexit in, ins and outs as, as carefully as I probably should. But it turns out, yeah, there is some, some there there. Um, you know, the it? use of Cambridge Analytica, yes. uh, Nigel Farage and his closeness with the Russian government. Fox I mean, an outspoken, mm-hmm. outspoken, avowed supporter of Putin, uh, somebody who has visited Julian Assange in the embassy for the purposes of conducting a, quote, interview for his radio program. But um, there's definitely a, a kind of nexus, an Anglo-American nexus with WikiLeaks and Russia. Um, Farage is definitely a linchpin of that. But look, here's a, here's a classic example of, it, was it them or was it us, right? Brexit. There is a very, I mean, what was, it was over 40, uh, it was 51%. There is a sizable contingent of the British population that thinks the European Union is an overweening supranational bureaucracy, unelected, nobody has, and, and is, 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 is mucking about in the affairs of British citizens, where British citizens have no say in, in what Brussels does or does not do. Right. And the, the pioneer of this argument, or one of the, the, the chief architects of this argument, was one Boris Johnson, mm-hmm. who is now prime minister. Boris Johnson is not a Russian asset. I mean, he, he mucks about and, and you know, socializes with oligarchs and the sons of oligarchs, but you can't really swing a cat in London without hitting one of these guys. Yeah. I've lived there for three years. It's called London grad for a reason. Um, people aren't saying Boris Johnson, you know, Russian agent. 
they're saying Boris Johnson buffoon, Boris Johnson, you know, little Englander, pseudo-isolation, somebody who pretends to be more Eurosceptic than he actually is and has done grievous harm to his own country as a result of it. So again, a perfect example. The Russians see that which is naturally occurring in a foreign society. Brexit, the, argue, the, the idea for Brexit was in the British, British bloodstream long before any Russians decided they're going to mm-hmm. try and push or encourage this. Right. And they just... You know, they, 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 they wield a light touch here and there. They offer some money to people who might be doing something that's in their interest. Why do the Russians like Brexit? Because they like picking off their allies one by one. Mm-hmm. The European Union, conceived of as basically a United States of Europe, is a singular voting bloc when it comes to things like sanctions. You need unanimous consent. So for England or the UK to break away from the EU means we can do our own deal with Britain and not have to go through Brussels. So it's good for Russia. Russia would like to see other countries withdraw from the EU. They would like to see the EU completely disbanded, the same way they'd like NATO. And it's, so right, it's something consistent. that's occurring. Yeah, it's consistent with them right. sowing chaos to their benefit because it breaks up the alliances that are um, that impede their what they want to do in, in their position in the world. Bottom line, right? right. They, they see people who are espousing their own interests, and they want to befriend them, and they want to pat them on the head. And they want to push them at the back and say, keep going. And in some cases, they're going to say, here, have some money, too. But what do you need from us? How can we help? That's what they're doing. That's, that's, I think, the Russian contribution to Brexit. I think before we end, we just have to talk a little bit about WikiLeaks because because they're Mm -hmm. in the news and the role that WikiLeaks played in uh, our election interference. And finally, Julian Assange has been arrested after years of being holed up in London in the Ecuadorian embassy. Uh, And what we now know about the extent of his meddling and working with the Russians, um, just talk a little bit about what exactly WikiLeaks did and why the American people should be really upset about it when they hear the president of the United States saying, I love WikiLeaks. Well, this began as a we steal secrets. We are a, a transparency first NGO that wanted to publish government classified information, particularly from the United States, its Western allies. But also, I mean, there was a time when WikiLeaks was doing stuff um, against other authoritarian regimes. I mean, they had Syria. They, they had published a bunch of leaks from the Syrian regime. But look, fundamentally, and I don't know, I mean, I can only speculate. I, I, I know that, that I followed Julian Assange closely enough to know that he's a megalomaniac. He's a narcissist. And I also think he's a borderline sociopath. And he's um, no hero. And he has, I just want people to know. People used to, in the beginning, thought that not Julian a hero. Assange was some he's kind of hero, not a and hero. he's not. I think, um, you know, there are even people who have worked in WikiLeaks who have left, such as James Ball, who's a very good investigative reporter in the UK, who've had one, one-on-one interactions with Assange. Uh, not a hero, uh, really kind of a villainous guy um, who has um, happily partnered with known Holocaust deniers and anti-Semites, particularly a man called Israel Shamir, who was presented as, as actually WikiLeaks representative in Russia, who was going around um, offering to sell uh, to newspapers various uh, State Department memos from the, the State Department uh, hack or leak, uh, was going around and, and arguably, and reportedly, I should say, went to Belarus and gave over unredacted State Department cables to Alexander Lukashenko, Europe's last dictator. Unbelievable. Cables which will have absolutely contained the names of known Belarusian dissidents, which would have enabled Lukashenko's security service, which is still known as the KGB, by the way, to go after 
domestic opponents and enemies. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I never liked Assange. I always thought he was up to no good. But now it comes to light that he spent, the, what, seven, eight years in this in this cupboard in, in Knightsbridge. Um, and he's getting he's he's doing election election interference and his own host government, the Ecuadorian government, has accused him of interfering with sovereign democracies and their and their plebiscite. So, and they were so um, suspicious of few, him that they hired their own security company to surveil him, which I thought was yeah, pretty. Well, what's interesting insane. is when he first when he first ran into that embassy, um, he and this was reported in the Ecuadorian press. He wanted a Russian security detail. <laughs> within the embassy. And as you know, I mean, all diplomatic missions are sovereign right. soil That's of right. that country. So it's like, I want, I want Russian security services to guard me in Ecuadorian soil. And the Ecuadorians are like, you can't have that. Um, obviously, the, the, the interference in the 2016 election, the passing of the hacked emails from the GRU to WikiLeaks happened whilst he was in the embassy. So CNN came out with this very good report based on as you say, this Ecuadorian security firm, which had been chronicling Assange's misadventures, um, saying that, yeah, he, he was interfering in a host of different elections and also invited a kind of motley crew of international ruffians and gangsters and no good nicks, including many, many Russians. Um, so here's the thing. I don't think, and again, this is where you enter into this sort of gray nebulous zone of what is an agent, what is an asset. I don't think at any point, I mean, I could be wrong. And I, I, I suppose I wouldn't be surprised if tomorrow, you know, it was, it was published that this is exactly how it went down. But I don't think somebody said, hi, I'm Sergey, I'm SVR. I'd like to recruit you, Julian Assange. It was never like that. It was, here's a guy who, again, he was working toward our, meaning the Russian interest. We should give him as much encouragement as possible. He's pissing off the Americans like no other. Mm-hmm. Um, we should work with him, but not not control him, allow him to do what he's doing. Just give him a little helping hand every now and then. At some point, though, you know, the, the best kind of recruit is one who doesn't even know he's being recruited. Right. That's the, because unwitting, the unwitting, right? The unwitting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then what happens is then you, you sort of the penny drops or you, you disclose, hey, by the way, all this time you've been doing my bidding. Um, because I've been manipulating you, and now you've done so much that I own you. I think that's sort of how it happened. And I think, you know, it's going to come to light. I mean, I don't, the first, the first charge against Assange for cyber crimes, there was a hue and cry about this in the, in the U.S. press. This is an encroachment on freedom of speech and media freedoms and all that. I thought, no, it's not. I mean, I'm a journalist. If, if, I, if I offered, if I was seconded, by a source of mine, or rather, I, if I volunteered to a source of mine to help that source hack a Pentagon server, I'm losing my job, I'm losing my reputation, and I'm going to jail. That's right. And there's no First Amendment argument on my behalf. That's right. Now, the second suite of charges under the Espionage Act, which I think is a very dated and very controversial and very problematic law, because it can be used against journalists, I objected to that. But one thing I don't object to is, and here, here's where the irony really, I think, bites Julian in the ass. We steal secrets. No more secrets. We're about all transparency. Well, how many secrets does Julian Assange have that he, does, that he has that he does not want to see uh, disclosed in, in the public forum? Mm-hmm. If he is extradited to the United States, then all of, and by the way, I mean, the U.S. government, I would be I would think much, much less of it if it didn't already have much of his digital infrastructure, his hard drives his thumb drives, all the stuff he left when he was yanked out of the embassy by the Metropolitan Police. It's not just Assange who's going to be extradited. It's everything. It's all his kit, all his encrypted 
you know, apparatus. Um, what happens when Americans start reading in the court filings? You know, this is this is who he was communicating with. This is what he was doing for all of these years. Um, I don't think the, the, the I mean, his sanitized stature, the, the sort of reputation he cultivated for several years while he was a free man living mostly in the UK has evaporated. But I think whatever's left of his credibility is also going to evaporate as a result of this. Also- because his, even to this day, his apologists refuse to believe that he has become, witting or unwitting, an agent of the Russian Federation. They absolutely refuse to believe it. Yeah. And even when they're confronted with incontrovertible proof that he is, which I suspect is coming, um, and again, I, I, I don't have the proof. I'm, I'm just telling you my gut feeling sure. about this. They'll still deny it. Well, I mean, they I, still deny that the Russians did anything in 2016. Right. I right. mean, it's just, but it doesn't matter because you know, the rest of us will know that's right. what was going on. That's right. It's, uh, it's, and, it's a- and then it has other implications for, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Nigel Farage, um, you know, his relationship with, uh, gosh, I mean, Roger so Stone. many different stakeholders, how, Roger how about- Stone, all of the celebrities that, that have lined up to defend him, Pamela Anderson, um, you know, oh, Bianca Jagger. Dana Rohrbacher uh, went over there and was and was advocating for a pardon yeah. for him, for God's sakes. I was like, Dana, yeah. what are you doing? I actually reached out to him uh, when that when I found that out. And I, I was like, I sent him a note because not only did he go over there to meet with, with Julian Assange, he went with Chuck Johnson, who's another Holocaust denier, jerk off that mm-hmm. has no bit, you know, conspiracy theorist running around. I said, Dana, what are you doing? And you yeah. know, it was just, uh, oh, you know, I'm overreacting. Oh, OK. You know, I mean, it's the list is long. And, and I I'm very curious because the Roger Stone case is still ongoing. And there are some, va- you know, veiled references to WikiLeaks and what they did in the Mueller report. But I still think that the shoe is going to show some shoes are going to drop on exactly what Stone and others were doing and how compliant they were with WikiLeaks during the election and the dumping of all that information. It was it was coordinated. I don't care what anybody says. They were freaking in cahoots. No, of course it was. Of course it was coordinated. And of course he knew who the source of this information was, which is why he was he was encouraging the Seth Rich conspiracy theory, which is now. As, we, as I said earlier, because of what Isakoff approved, Julian Assange is the beneficiary of GRU information, and then Julian Assange became, becomes an amplifier of an SVR active measure. So either Julian Assange is the most naive and innocent man in the world, or he has absolutely no compunction about partnering with known Russian intelligence organs and assets. Uh, I think I know what the answer is. I'm going to go with the latter. (laughs) Right. Well, as we as we wrap this up, I mean, it's it's kind of depressing to a certain degree where we look at how incestuous this all is and the effect that it's having on us, the effect that it's having on our democracy, the effect that it's having in Western democracies around the world. Where where do we stand for 2020, Michael? I mean, are we ready for 2020? Are you confident that our elections are going to come off without a hitch? You know, what what should people be paying attention to and what should they be demanding of our elected officials? I mean, I think in a way, you know, if if I was sitting in in the Lubyanka, or if I was sitting in the glass house, which is the headquarters of the GRU. And I was thinking, what can I do to really fuck things up the next time around? (laughs) In a way, my job is a bit easier because a Trump exists. He is this phenomenon who hourly, if not daily 
you know, sort of throws a bolt of lightning into the American electorate through a tweet, if not through some glib statement he makes to the press or whatever. It's exhausting. The opposition is, I mean, you know, it's extraordinary. I mean, Nancy Pelosi has been vilified by members of her own party as a racist and not just a racist, but someone inciting the murder of those self-same members of her own party. Right. And that's coming nice. from a, a Democratic Party, which is tilting at least into some degree, whether it's just an online versus offline phenomenon, I don't know, but uh, it's tilting left. Trump is looking at this as a gift, manna from heaven, um, the so-called squad and, and what they get up mm-hmm. to and the way he's waging these racist and Pujadist attacks on them. If I'm the, if I'm a Russian intelligence officer, I just think, you know, the world is my oyster at this point. There's just so much to, to play with, so much to choose from. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton, it, it, she, th- that whole phenomenon seems uh, just a complete bore as compared with what's what's waiting for 2020 right. in terms of not only just turning left against right, but turning left against left, right against right. Um, you know, it's it, it's kind of extraordinary. And, and as I said, they don't have to do very much physically to, um, to, to uh, I, I don't know how, how the U.S. would recover if it was shown for instance, that Trump was reelected and the Russians managed to, you know, steal hundreds of thousands of uh, bits of data from registered voters, thus screwing up, you know, the election night for one polling precinct in, you know, some one horse town. Yeah, or not even, not even in in Caligo, California, an abandoned ghost town, you know, the one registered voter turned up and couldn't vote because, his address had been changed. That that'll be enough. That'll be enough. Well, the, the country just will go to war with each other over it. Right, and and I I fear that in for in a number of reasons, more we, reasons than I want to admit that could plunge us into that kind of a chaos and putting each other against each other. It's all calculated, in my opinion, which is another reason why I'm so disturbed by the fact that one of the last adults in the room the director of national intelligence, Dan Coates, has now resigned and is seemingly going to be replaced with someone who has zero experience in the intelligence community and who is a lackey of Donald Trump and who is actually openly hostile to the intelligence community and the Mueller report and the things that were found in it. Uh, I, I mean, can you imagine what do we I mean? Well, yeah, so if I'm, if I'm the here. Trump people, if I'm the Trump campaign and I've got loyalists who are now running U.S. intelligence, in the lead up to 2020, I'll just start leaking information selectively, tendentiously, to paint a picture of, A, the so-called deep state, you know, plotting to overthrow a democratically elected president, B, uh, Obama-era spies surveilling and and recording a, a Republican candidate for president, C, you know, attempts by the FBI to entrap patriotic Americans like George Papadopoulos by sending informants or agents to query him about his contacts with the Russians. Uh, I'm just going to paint a a really dark picture that every alt-right Trumpian conspiracy theory. uh, Oh, and uh, let's not forget about the Christopher Steele dossier and the origins of of the Russian investigation, Mm -hmm. all that stuff. All of that stuff is true and more. I'm just and just leak things selectively, even if on the on the face of them, they, they, they end up debunking the conspiracy theory, the way that they'll be used by the likes of Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and, and the rest of it. Um, it it's just it's going to be a, a bonanza. 
Um, where do people where do people get where should they turn? Because there is so much propaganda and bullshit information being spewed out there from the, the, the conservative right and Fox News. Where should what, what are trusted sources for people to get their information from about this stuff? I have a few. I, you know, like Just Security and other places like that. Obviously, you're you're writing at the Daily Beast. Where can people feel confident that they're go, they can get information that is not Fox News? Because I know that's a lot of people ask me that. They go, where do we go to get our information? There's so much bullshit out there. What do we do? Where, what are some I mean, look, sources we can end on that? So people feel like they can do something to feel like they're informed and they're doing something uh, you know, to, to preserve our democracy since the Republicans in Congress aren't sure as hell aren't doing it. I, I can't really give you sort of blanket recommendations because, look, as, as somebody who, who does or who has studied and has written about two things, um, the Middle East, particularly an emphasis on Syria and ISIS, and Russia. Um, there are things that the New York Times does that I think are extraordinary and, and well-researched and, and, you know, really grade A bits of journalism. And then there are things the New York Times does that I think, well, that doesn't, that doesn't sound right, or I, I, I know more or better than that. Um, so I, I don't want to sit here and say, right, here's a reading list of publications that are always on point. Um, but I will say, yeah, if, if you want to learn about Russian interference in American democracy, I'd, I'd switch off Fox. Um, I would not read the Wall Street Journal opinion section, but definitely read the Wall Street Journal reporting, mm-hmm. particularly on the Middle East, because it's excellent. Um, the Guardian has done some really great things. The Guardian has done some sensationalistic, not so great things. Um, it, it, it's sort of a mixed bag, really. Uh, you know, there are people I would follow um, on Twitter who I think talk sense, and I don't always agree with them, but then again, who do you always agree with? You don't. Uh, on Russia, I mean, let's see. Uh, Andrei Soldatov, who is a Russian journalist who covers the Russian security services, who's written two books and is currently, I think, publishing a third. He's excellent, and his partner, Irina Borogin, um, they're on Twitter. You can find them. Um, you know, Ben Wittes, I read for getting a good sense of the legal implica- implications of Mueller's investigation. Um, Anne Applebaum is great to have an understanding of the European context for all of this stuff. Um, who else? Uh, Mark Galliotti is a very good uh, analyst of Russian security services and uh, sort of Russian foreign policy and tends to take a, a, a not counterintuitive, but goes against the grain on a lot of the um, conventional wisdom on this stuff, but always worth reading, digesting. Um, you know, John Cipher, the former CIA heads of Russia House, uh, you just kind of have to read them because, mm-hmm. again, they've got an institutional knowledge and m- most of it is things that they'll never talk about. So um, I'm hoping to get John Cipher yeah, on, no. the, on the program as a guest soon because I'm uh, he's another. No, he's, no, he's great. A and, wealth of yeah, information. Very personable guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, look, I actually find it very, very useful. Um, you know, they're, they're seen as dinosaurs, but they shouldn't be because so there's so much continuity from the Soviet to the post-Soviet period. But some of the old Cold Warriors from the 70s and 80s who are still kicking um, and writing, just they don't get the kind of play that, you know, younger, louder, contemporary figures do. Uh, they're just great resources for sort of understanding the full depth 
and sweep of all this. Um, so there's a guy, Paul Goebel, who's actually a colleague of mine at The Interpreter, who is an analyst, particularly on, on the mi- ethnic and, and nationalist minority questions in, in the Soviet Union. And he's just, I mean, you know, I had a conversation with him the other day and told him I'm doing a book on the GRU. And he recommended this obscure novel that I think there's only like three copies in, in circulation anywhere in the world. And it was written by um, this Soviet guy, but it's really kind of um, a thinly veiled allegory for what the Russian security, or I'm sorry, the Soviet security services got up to in uh, another part of the world. So it's, it's sort of like a Bildungsroman of uh, a Russian spy. Uh, and it's just like, you know, things like that I, I find fascinating. You know, people mm-hmm. who who remember these little bits of, of niche, well, sure, you they, know, wisdom they live through it. It's firsthand. Knowledge. They live In through knowledge, it. It's... They have perspective. Yes. Um, you know, I mean, for instance, okay. So I, I wrote a piece for the New York review of books six eight months ago. And you know, what, one of the things I wanted to kind of wrap my head around was, you know, okay. If you take the, the steel dossier and you divine from that, that Trump is, either a paid agent or it just didn't, it didn't wash for me because he'd be the worst, <laughs> the worst right. Russian agent ever. Yeah, he's so okay. flamboyant. Yeah. He's so yeah. unpredictable. And he he's, telegraphs just, everything not how it works. on Twitter. So <laughs> he tells right. the truth so, on Twitter. You know, I went and I interviewed people like Cypher, Steve Hall, who's another former head of Russia house. And then there's a guy called Burton Gerber. Now you're not going to find him on Twitter. He's not on Facebook. He's, 85, if not 90 years old. He was the former head of Russia House, but back in the 80s during the Alger James mm. crisis, mm-hmm. uh, just to refresh for your listeners, Alger James was a CIA officer who was working for the Soviets. And it was, I think, one of the biggest breaches in U.S. intelligence history. Yeah, um, I remember that. And anyway, so college. Bert Gerber, though, is seen as kind of like this legend of American intelligence. And I, you know, I put it to him. I said, yeah, what, Trump, I mean, what do you, I said, here, well, here's, here's, here, here are a couple of different factors. Number one, um, would this guy ever be recruited? I mean, if he went in 1984 so, or whatever it was yeah, to Moscow and, you know, Yuri Dubunin, um, or, you know, kind of was flattering him and, and talking up Trump Tower is the first thing he saw when he got off the plane and blah, 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 which is impossible if you land at JFK. But uh, anyway, he's like, no, of course he wouldn't be a recruited agent. He's, he's what she would call an agent of influence. Somebody who, as I said earlier, you know, tends to espouse interests that are in line with then the Soviet, now the Russian government. And all you have to do is encourage him, manipulate him a little bit, flatter him, kind of create the contours of a path he needs to take, but don't necessarily push him down the path. That's how it would work with someone like him. I said, oh, that makes sense. And I said, well, what, you know, factor two, and there is this, this credible argument coming from Republicans that, well, actually he's been a lot better. His administration, that is, has been a lot better on Russia than Obama. Um, Javelin anti-tank missiles to Ukraine. Sanctions haven't been lifted. In fact, they've been ratcheted up um, on Syria. It was Mattis's Pentagon that ended up bombing 200 Russian mercenaries in Deir Zor in the only instance of active combat between the United States and Russia ever. Um, you know, how do you how do you square this with Trump being, you know, Putin's bitch? Right. And he said, well, you know, if you are enthrall or if you are um, in some way under the 
the not the control because that would contradict what I just said. But you know what I mean. If if, if you are um, kind of a fellow traveler mm-hmm. of the Russian regime, um, you would be expected to do things that would distract people from thinking that, or or, or would actually undermine that 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 right, uh, right. supposition. It gives them, so it gives them cover to say plausible I, deniability. No one, that's right. right. So, no one's you know, ever and, been tougher on Russia than me. Meanwhile, and, he's doing yeah, exactly. You know, and the he's standing next would, to Putin would in Helsinki. Right. And the Russians would know well enough that they'd have to take it on the chin a few right. times. And in fact, you know, if, you, if you go through all of these policies, I mean, you know, giving arming the Ukrainian military, giving them anti-tank missiles now, it's nice. Symbolically, it's good, but it doesn't really do much because of the Minsk protocol, which is right. It's fire. over with now. It would, have, it would have done a lot more in 2014 than right. it does now. Right. Under so the Russians problem. don't. Really, yeah, and, and by the way, I mean, you know, because the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian security services, and I'm sure to some extent the Ukrainian military, has also been infiltrated by, by Russia, um, giving Ukraine and Japan anti-tank missiles is also a good way of getting them stolen and having the Russians in possession of American firepower, which is something they always want to do. I mean, that's the reason that, you know, Turkey had to be taken out of the F. 35 program when they took uh, S-400 missiles, because we don't want Russia seeing what our one warplane that can evade S-400s can do. Um, so, yeah, there are all kinds of little sort of subtleties and nuances to these things. And I don't know, I, I find that, you know, you, you turn on TV or sometimes you read about this stuff in the paper, you don't really get a sense of how complicated and and murky it all is. It's, it's just very cut and dry. You know, for instance, and I don't want to take up more of your time on this, but I didn't really like this um, uh, this column in the Washington Post that uh, I think it was Dana uh, Milbank. You know, Mitch McConnell is a Russian asset. Mm-hmm. I think, and I know that the headline was was a, a little louder than the piece itself, and there was, right, it was he, they were in the tent to try. It's just, but it, 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 it's cartoonish, and it doesn't do any good. It certainly doesn't do any good for people like myself who try to explain that. Well, hang on, you know. It, it, Stop, stop referring to people as assets. Right. That you know, I mean, really Julian Assange, I think, I think I can make a credible case, at least a, a, a circumstantial one, that chances are this guy is an asset. And I, like I said, it's a gut feeling. And I, you know, if, I'm, if I'm disproven, fine. If I'm vindicated, hooray. But stop calling you know, Senate Majority Leader a Russian. It's, 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 it's childish. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't help. And particularly after so many people were banging on about Putin being a Manchurian candidate. I'm sorry, Freudian flip. Donald Trump being a Manchurian <laughs> candidate. You know, no, it, 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 it's not. Yeah, it, it, it's not how it, it works. It's, it's hyperbole. It's and it dilutes it and it's right. Right. And it, it, you know, it makes a caricature of, of work that actually takes, you know, a long time to, to get to get to the bottom of, of, of how these things really are. Um, so, yeah, I would say, you know, people who have been doing this for a long time are always excellent resources, um, you know, uh, but I, I wish I could tell you, always read X publication. No, yeah, I mean, sometimes the I think they get it wrong. That's the challenge. And yeah. listen, and, and it, there's a certain amount of individual responsibility when you live in an open and free democracy to um, be resourceful and, and knowledgeable about what's going on. And, and I, I challenge uh, people to do that because you're not going to be spoon fed everything. You're going to have to use your own, your own brain and critical thinking. And this is one of those areas. Michael Weiss, what a conversation. This was only supposed to be about a half an hour and it turned into this robust conversation that I appreciate greatly because it was full of information. I think people are smarter as a result of it. Uh, tell people where they can find you and, uh, 
Um, what's it? Do you have a title for your upcoming book, and when is it coming out? So the title is called The Glass House, which is the um, the kind of pet name they use for the GRU headquarters, because as you would imagine, it's all glass. Um, and it's going to come out, well, it's due, I should say, in May of next year. Probably will come out a little bit later. Um, I know they want to have it published before the presidential election. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, TBD on that. Um, and then I write a semi-regular column for the Daily Beast Um you can usually find it. They tend to run it at the weekends. Uh, the next one is on Boris Johnson, um, who is another fascinating figure for me who I've spent a lot of time studying and um, lived in London when he was mayor there during the Olympics. Uh, and then on Twitter, um, the handle is uh, the at thingy, uh, uh, Michael D. Weiss. And that's where you can find me. That's fantastic. So follow Michael Weiss. We'll look for your book. Definitely read your columns. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation. Keep up the great work. Michael Weiss, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Take care. Again, what a conversation with Michael Weiss. Big thank you to him for joining me on Honestly Speaking. Um, This is going to be the last episode for the rest of the summer. Like everybody else in Washington, uh, we, I will be taking the month of August off and coming back in September with um, a new season of Honestly Speaking podcasts. So enjoy this episode. If you, don't, if you can't, don't have a chance to listen to it all at once, you have plenty of time to listen to all of it. But uh, I will be back uh, in September after we travel. Um, my wedding anniversary and my birthday are both in the same week, first week of September. So we will be traveling to the French Riviera and to Calabria in Italy. I'm so excited. We got married in Sicily, so we try to go somewhere in Italy as often as we can every year. So this year we're blessed to be able to do both French Riviera, which I've never been to before. So if anybody's ever been there, tweet at me some suggestions of things we should do, where we should go, must sees. And um, and I've, had, I've never been to the Calabria um, section of, of Southern Italy. I've been all over other places in Italy, but not there. So looking forward to that. And I just want to say a big thank you to everyone listening for supporting the podcast. We're doing great. Um, Tens of thousands of downloads already, and that's awesome. And I hope to continue to improve and make it better and exciting and something that you guys continue to support because I love doing it. It gives me an opportunity to speak to my listeners and my followers directly. So I will continue to do that. So see you guys in September. And um, my note to Democrats... As my grandma used to say, shit or get off the pot already with impeachment. If what we saw from Trump in, in recent weeks, what Bob Mueller said, despite his feeble appearance and his the way he presented himself, the substance of what he said was pretty devastating. And just like Justin Amash said, listen, if these aren't impeachable things, I don't know what is. And his fear is not using impeachment too much, but not using it enough. Let's get it going. There's a, time is running out. Either impeach him, for the, for the history record, the history books, because we get, get removed is the Senate, but it needs to be on record that the American people did not stand for a lawless president like this one. So it's now or never, folks. Bye.